please read with me Exodus 17, 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill and with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, I will hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have a war with Amalek from generation to generation. All right, Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. The story of the Exodus, the people of God, Israel, delivered from Egypt and making their way to the promised land, is a wilderness story, and it's a, a historical account of God saving his people. It's the account of God saving his people, and we begin especially to see in Exodus the plan and pattern of redemption by God. That God saves people who are enslaved. Specifically, God saves sinners. God saves his people from Egypt, and he delivers them out of Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb. He delivers them from Egypt. You remember the ten plagues and all of that going on? They leave Egypt, and then they can't cross the Red Sea, and so God parts the Red Sea, and they walk through the Red Sea. And then they find their way out into the desert and realize nobody packed lunch. And they're out of food. And they're out of water. So God provides water. And then God provides food. And then they run out of water again. And God provides more water. Over and over and over again, God is making provision for his people to be taken from bondage into rest, which will be in the promised land. But in today's passage, Exodus 17, 8 through 16, something changes. I'm going to tell you right up front what that something is. Up to this point in their wilderness wanderings, in their passing from bondage in Egypt to the promised land, for the most part, this has been a spectator sport. God says, watch this, and he deals with Egypt. God says, check this out, and he parts the Red Sea. God says, get a load of this, and he provides them water, and he provides them food, and he provides them more water. And then we get to Exodus 17, verse 8, and this army of Amalekites or the people of Amalek are going to destroy Israel and God doesn't say to them hey get out your lawn chair check this out what does he say to them go and fight so something fundamentally has changed in the journey from Egypt to the promised land and what we discover in this account is the mission of God is to save his people and they have been called to join with God in that mission. That the mission of God to bring redemption is not a spectator sport. It's a mission we're called to, and we're going to see this morning, that God called the people of Israel 
into mission with him. Look at verses 8 and 9 again of Exodus chapter uh, 17. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim, and Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us some men and go out and fight the guy. Tomorrow I'm going to go up on the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And if you're Joshua going, I got an idea. You go fight, I'll go on the hill. He doesn't say that. Amalek comes out to fight, and something, like we mentioned before, changes. Instead of God saying, hey, watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring a fire from heaven. I'm going to destroy them. Or I'm going to have the ground open up and swallow them. Or I'm going to have a bunch of locusts come in and carry them off. Or whatever that he might have done. Instead, Moses says to Joshua, go and fight. So the first thing, being called into mission, we're here, we're going to see. To be on mission, you must go. To be on mission, you have to go. Apparently, people climb Mount Everest. My understanding is people go from perfectly comfortable surroundings and on purpose go to Nepal and climb up a mountain that is 32,000 feet high. I had a friend of mine who flew over Mount Everest. He said, you know, that's really the way to go. You get in a plane, you pay 100 bucks, 200 bucks, and they will fly an airplane over the top of that mountain. You can see everything the hikers see. I watched a documentary on the climbing of Mount Everest, and I think it was pretty impressive because I didn't go to a regular theater. I went to an IMAX theater at OMSI. And so I would suggest, having gone to see a Mount Everest documentary at an IMAX theater, I can pretty much say I have climbed Mount Everest. No, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. To climb Mount Everest, I hate to break it to you, you have to actually go to, to Mount Everest. And to be on mission, when we're called into mission, you have to actually go somewhere. You have to go to where the mission is. Look at the phrase in verse 9 of Exodus 17. Choose men, here's the key word, go fight. Go and fight. There is no sitting back and watching. There is no seeing what God is going to do. There is just simply, it is time to unsheath your sword and fight. The mission of God is to get his people from bondage in Egypt to rest in the promised land. And on the way there, in that mission of redemption, they have encountered an enemy. And God has said, go and fight with Amalek. This is not a spectator sport. Even though this is a work of God's grace in the lives of his people, God's grace to redeem them out of Egypt, they are participants in the grace of Christ by engaging in the mission God has called them to do. God is going to take them to the promised land. We mentioned this either last week or the week before. Notice, God didn't book them a charter flight. He didn't fly them from Egypt to the promised land. Could he have done that? And you say, well, airplanes weren't invented yet. That's not a problem for God. If God would have wanted to, he could have just taken them out of Egypt, plopped them into the promised land, and gotten rid of all the, all the enemies of the people of God. He didn't do that because he wants the people of God that he has redeemed by his grace to participate in the mission of God by his grace. God's mission is to save people enslaved. God's mission is to provide rest for people who are enslaved. God's mission is a mission of grace, meaning he extends to us favor that we don't deserve, but his mission is one that we go with him on. 
and you may disagree with me on this, and no, my job is just to enjoy my salvation. If your job was merely to enjoy your salvation, now, you should enjoy it, then why didn't he take you to heaven the moment you got saved? If when you got saved, whatever that moment was for you, if you're a Christian, and you got saved, how come in that moment you didn't just go to heaven? Is it because he's busy? Is it because he's still building it? Maybe he has something for you to do here to participate in his plan of mission as a function of your being saved. What is God's mission in our life? To honor his covenant to us. He made a promise to us to redeem those who put their faith in him. The people of Israel exemplified that. When their redemption occurred, they put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their homes in Egypt as an act of faith, saying, we trust that because this blood is on our doorposts, the angel of death will pass over us. So we receive salvation today by doing the same thing. We say, the blood of Christ is on my heart. I trust that he redeems me because I believe him. And so the angel of death will pass over me because I have life in Christ. And God's goal is to express his faithfulness to his covenant, his faithfulness to his promise in us. God will show himself faithful to his mission to redeem us. I could say it this way. When God saves you, it's as good as done. You are as saved as you will ever be. You can't be more righteous than in Christ. He will show his faithfulness to us by completing his mission on us even after we're dead. But there's another goal in his mission in our lives, to show his faithfulness to his promise to us but there's another one. Here's the other goal. Transformation. See, now you want to leave. We like the let's go to heaven bit. But now we realize his redemptive work, his plan, his mission is not only to show his faithfulness to get us from here to glory. It's also to change our hearts. In fact, the Bible tells us his goal is to make us more and more like Jesus every day until the day we go to glory. So he will show his covenant faithfulness to us by making sure he gets us from here to there, and he will also show his faithfulness to us by every single day of our life, working out transformation in our lives, making us more and more like Christ. The people of Israel are making their way across the wilderness. They're learning to trust God more and more and more. Okay, when we run out of water, no need to freak out. When we run out of food, we don't have to freak out. When an army shows up, we don't have to freak out. And now one more step this morning. Oh, when an army shows up, we have to fight them. Okay, here we go. Let's go and, and fight. This is God slowly over time training them on what it looks like to live under their mission and the covenant of God. Let me show this to you over in Judges chapter 3, verse 2. It says this. Well, you see the verse up there. I'm going to read verse 1. It's not on the screen. Here's what verse 1 of Judges 3 says. Now, there were nations that the Lord left in the promised land. They got to the promised land. There was a big fight. Joshua, I don't know if you remember some of the battles. you remember Jericho? Walls fell down. See, well, I don't remember that story. The Veggie Tales has a video on it. It's pretty good. Veggie, uh, not Veggie uh, Jericho got AI. They... they they defeat uh, nearly all of the kingdoms of Canaan, and they occupy the land of Canaan. But we discover in Judges chapter 3 that God left some of the nations 
in Canaan undefeated to test Israel, that is, that Israel, uh, who was in Canaan at that time, they had not experienced the wars of Canaan. So verse 2 says this, It was in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. So God takes his people into the promised land. There's a whole generation of people who don't know how to fight. So what does God do to allow his people to have the skills necessary to participate in the mission of redeeming his people in his land? He says, I'm going to leave some of the enemies in the land so you will have to fight them and learn war. What we're learning here is God is going to do what it takes in the lives of his people to draw them to be transformed, to be like they need to be to accomplish his purposes. Now, if you read the book of Judges, you'll realize they did a lousy job at this. And so God, at the end of the book of Judges, says, you know what, this isn't going to work. They need a king. So God gives them a king. And then you get to the end of 2 Kings, and what did you realize? Their kings did a lousy job at this. What do we need? We need a Messiah. And then we find Jesus. To be on mission, we have to go, because to participate with God in his covenant to us, to redeem us from slavery, he is going to use our engagement with his work in the world to make us like Christ more and more each day. To be engaged with the work of God is the primary means that God is going to use in our lives to make us like Jesus. We trust God to save us, and then we trust God to help us as we engage in the world around us with his covenant mission to to the people we know and love. Let me ask this question as a way of ending this this part of the message. Uh, Do you ever find yourself frustrated with your spiritual life? Oh, certainly not. No. Each day is a new high with Jesus. You ever say, man, I I feel stuck. I don't know what's... I don't think anything's happening. I don't see any power. I'd, what am I supposed to do here? How do I get unstuck? Let me just remind us of something here that we see in the lives of the people of Israel. The primary means that God is going to use to transform us to be more and more like Jesus is when we go and we engage in the mission of God around us. The primary means that God is going to build in us faith, that he is going to chisel away the parts of our life that are not like Christ, is when we jump in both feet and say, Jesus, what have you called me to do today in your mission to redeem lost people? Who do I need to tell today that Jesus saves sinners? And you say, well, do you want me to go knock on my neighbor's door? Well, if you want to. Who do you think in your life today needs to hear that Jesus saves sinners? I'll give you a couple of ideas. First one, are you married? Your spouse might need to be reminded today that Jesus saves sinners. Now, as husbands and wives, we get this backwards. We think my mission is to remind my spouse they're a sinner. (laughs) That may be needed. I'm not here to counsel you on that. Good luck with that, though. It may be they need to hear again today you know you're okay, Jesus died for that. You're squared away. Well, how do I engage in mission on that? Well, just, I'm just spitballing, throwing ideas out here. If Jesus can forgive you for that, then so do I. I'll never mention it again. Now just engage with mission. I didn't have to, I didn't have to go knock on my neighbor's door and do a cold call. I engaged on redemptive mission in my home. We can do that with our children. 
We can do that with our friends. We can do that with them. Jesus saved sinners like you, and I forgive you just as much as he did. We can let go of that resentment and engage with mission. All right, call to mission. Number one, we're learning here. To be on mission, you must go and you must fight. Uh, next thing, to be on mission, you have to engage the enemy. Look with me again, Exodus chapter 17, verses 10 through 13. Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek. Moses and Aaron and Hur went up onto the top of the hill, and whenever Moses held up his hands, it was, he had his staff in his hand, he was obviously praying. Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hands, get the blood flowing, get a little shaky-poo, uh, Amalek would prevail, so he'd hold his hands up again. Moses' hands got tired, and so Aaron and Hur would kind of hold up his hands, give him something to sit on so they could hold up his hands, and over the course of time, uh, he prayed, Joshua fight and fought, and they overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. To be on mission, you must engage the enemy. I don't know if you've ever played dodgeball. Uh, the youth, uh, the student ministry, they do a dodgeball tournament every uh, fall. And uh, there's a group of people in dodgeball, I call them backliners. Their job is basically to stand on the back line and hope they don't get hit, but they, uh, basically they're cannon fodder. But here's the thing. In order to win dodgeball, I don't know if you understand how dodgeball works, you have to either eliminate all the other players on the other team, or by the time time is up, you have more players left on your side than the other side. At some point, you have to throw a ball. That, I, I know, this is very complicated. Stay with me. At some point, you have to throw a ball and hit somebody so they get out. To be on mission, we have to engage with the enemy. We have to go and get after it. The mission is not something that is merely passive. There are some elements of it that are done in the quiet of our own hearts and minds. But to engage in mission, to be called on mission, we have to engage the enemy. This happened in the Civil War, actually. There was this great battle being fought. I forget the name of it. And this Union soldier lost his gun or something, and everything's going terribly. Everybody's getting shot. This was typical in Civil War. And so he dove into this little hollowed-out area in the, in the clearing, and he was basically going to kind of get out of the fighting. Like, if I can hide here, we'll just wait till all the bullets stop flying, and then maybe I'll avoid the dying part. So he's sitting there, sort of hunkered and hiding, and nobody sees him. All of a sudden, another guy jumps in, and it's a Confederate soldier. So here are these two guys trying to avoid fighting, and now they're in a little uh, hiding spot with each other. So they start fighting. They get into a big fist fight, and this is just like cats and dogs all over. Pretty soon, they're not even in a little hiding spot anymore. They're out in the battlefield fighting. It's a fist fight. They don't have any guns. Pretty soon, the, bu the bullets stop. Both sides, the Confederates and the Union soldiers, stop to watch these guys fight it out. And they're just going at it. I mean, somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose, and they're just fighting and fighting. And finally, the Confederate soldier prevails over the Union, and he takes him, and he's a prisoner of war. And then as soon as the fist fight is over, the battle reengages, and everybody shoots each other, was the course of action. But it was incredible. Here's these two guys. The one thing they wanted to do was avoid the conflict, but the conflict is unavoidable. And to be on mission, to be called into mission, you must engage the enemy. So Joshua did what Moses told him, and he went out and he fought with Amalek. The men had to kill their enemy. Moses was on the hill praying, but jo Joshua and his army went out and had to fight 
the enemy. And they had a great victory. So the question is, how did they have victory? Was it because Moses was praying or was it because Joshua was fighting? Which one was it? Yes. If Joshua would have said, they're praying back at the prayer meeting, so I don't need to do anything, they would have died. If Joshua would have gone out and said, Moses, we got this, you can punch out on this one, they would have died. The reason that they were uh, successful in the mission is because God was working supernaturally through the prayer of Moses and supernaturally through the power of Joshua. They were called to mission, and so they had to engage the enemy. Look at what Moses was doing. Moses held up his hands, and, and Israel prevailed. Verse 11 says, whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. So the power of what is happening on the battlefield is the power of God alone. The reason there was a victory for Israel was the power of God is what worked out victory for the people of Israel on the battlefield. But look at the end of verse 13. Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the what? Sword. So the means of God's power being expressed through Moses and through the people of Israel was the sword. It wasn't because they had good swords. It wasn't because they had good training. It's because God determined to empower those who were on mission for what he was seeking to accomplish. They had to engage the enemy, but the only way they could engage the enemy was through the power of God. Let's look at this in the New Testament, a passage you're very familiar with, but we'll put the verses up on the screen nonetheless. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Where does our power come from as Christian? It comes from the Lord. In this case, Moses isn't praying with his hands up. The Bible tells us Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us forever. Always praying on your behalf for you, day in and day out, never takes a break. Verse 11, therefore, since Jesus is praying... Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Because of the work of Christ in our life, we are strengthened by the power of Jesus through his spirit in us, but we do the standing. We put on the armor of God and we stand and engage the enemy. And the enemy is people who have different political views than you, as is made clear by this passage. You're not even laughing. Who is the enemy here? Satan, the devil. What is Satan's mission? To murder 100% of all the people God has ever made. It's very simple. Just a very simple, and he's going to do it at various rates of speed. Some people will die quick. Others he wants to kill slow. And he, God is saying, I want you to stand against the enemy empowered by Christ. How in the world could we stand against a powerful spiritual enemy? We can only stand against a powerful spiritual enemy if Christ does the standing in us and through us. And if that enemy has already been defeated 
and that enemy was defeated at the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, sin was defeated, death was defeated, Satan was defeated. We aren't waiting for the scoreboard to tick down to zero. It's already ended. Jesus already won. When he came out of the grave, it was game over. Sin has no power over us any longer. Death has no power over us any longer. Satan can no longer control those who are in Christ Jesus. And what the Bible is calling us to do by faith is to stand against the enemy, knowing he has no power. Joshua defeated Amalek. Amalek was the more powerful force. The weaker army defeated the stronger army because the one behind the weak army was the strongest. You defeat the enemy not because you're awesome Christian pants. You defeat the enemy because Jesus already defeated the enemy. Your job is to stand against the enemy in your own life, sin in your own life. Your, Your job is to stand against those who would accuse and say that Jesus hasn't won. We have to stand up against the enemy who will seek to convince us that we aren't, in fact, winning. Look back with me to Exodus chapter, <coughs> Exodus chapter 17. Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. He had complete victory because of the work of Christ. Keep going. Well, let me ask this question, and then we'll move on to the the other observation. Maybe every now and then, I know probably nobody here, every now and then in your spiritual life, you don't feel like it's a victorious spiritual life. Maybe in your life with Christ, you're wandering along and and you say, you know what, I'm in Christ and uh, I see he had the victory on the cross. I don't feel like a victor. I don't feel like things are going my way. I, I feel like Maybe some of you, again, I'm I'm not suggesting this is the case. Maybe some of you still have some sin you struggle with. I mean, none of the really bad ones. I mean, just some like normal ones, like cheating on your taxes. And and you say, well, I don't understand this. If Christ has had the victory, how can my Christian life look like this? if, If Christ had victory, how come I'm still struggling with this sin? If Christ had the victory, how come I still am filled with resentment or envy or greed? If Christ had victory in my life, why aren't things going my way? Well, the main thing we have to understand is when we look in the scripture, what was the mission that we wanted, that, that Christ wanted to accomplish for us? He died on the cross so that our sin could be wiped away. He died on the cross so that we would have a new identity in Christ. We are now defined as the people of God when we put our faith in Christ Jesus. We now have a new location. Victors in Christ. So this is something we have to to grapple with when we stand against the enemy. When you hear in your ear, you're not that good at being a Christian. Who's telling you that? Would Jesus tell you that? Well, of course not. That's not what he says. I mean, we read the scripture. The Bible says quite clear. 
we have, by faith, we have a union with Christ. You want to evaluate your Christian life from Jesus' perspective. He looks at your heart and he goes, hey, you've got my heart. You're like me. In Christ, we have Christ's righteousness. That means you are more righteous than you could possibly be on your own. In fact, you have all of the righteousness you will ever need. So again, who's telling you you don't measure up? That's coming from either one of two places, either our own hearts and minds, which are filled with insecurities. I'm just not as awesome as this other Christian that's sitting next to me. Let me just give you my perspective on that. Most of the time, the people we believe are awesome Christians are just better at hiding it than you are. Man, why are they so good at being a Christian? Well, they're just better at being polite than you and me. When you hold other Christians up onto a pedestal, that's real dangerous. What we need to do is look at each other. Saved by faith through Christ alone? Okay, me too. So who's telling us that we don't measure up if we're in Christ? Who's telling us we're not righteous? Who's telling us we're a, a screw-up or a foul-up or a, or a bum? That, that God's going to let you into heaven, but he doesn't want to. If we, hadn't, if we hadn't put our faith in him, he'd kick us out, but now he's bound by his promises. What about you? Know, God let this guy in. Well, you're going to be a janitor in heaven. That's what we think. But, but that's the enemy trying to convince us he's winning. He's trying to convince us that we aren't unified with Christ. He's trying to convince us that the reality of our identity is bound up in our behavior, not in the finished work of Jesus. He's trying to convince us that I can sin my way out of God's favor. And all of that is a lie. When we are in Christ by faith, we have the favor of God because we have received the righteousness of God, and we have to engage the enemy. No, that is a lie. I'm in Christ. I am in Christ, and I look forward to a future home. And I will engage the enemy and say, you don't get to define who I am. I am defined by who Christ is. Do we want victory in our spiritual life? We really should ask that a different question this way. We should say, how do we understand we have victory in our life? How do we come to the place where we say, Christ has had the victory? That's where we settle on the fact that Jesus saves sinners, and it's finished. Called to mission, engage the enemy with the gospel. Okay, finally, let's, to be on mission, we have to remember we have to remember what Christ has done. Look at the last few verses of Exodus 17. The Lord said this to Moses. Write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner. And he said, A hand of the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. To be on mission, we must remember. There was another battle out in Texas. It was the Battle of San Jacinto. It lasted 18 minutes. It wasn't a very long battle. But there was a phrase that was shouted during this battle that we all remember. Do you know what, this, uh, what the phrase was in the Battle of San Jacinto? Remember the Alamo. Remember the Alamo. So what happened was, is the people who went to fought, uh, the Battle of San Jacinto, they wanted to recall the events of the Battle of Alamo, that they might be inspired to be moved on mission. Remember the Alamo. And so this uh, battle in Exodus 17, Moses is saying, we need to remember this battle. We need to put this into our mind as we continue on the mission of the Lord, 
that we might know what God's work looks like. And so they set up a memorial, and they wrote it down in a book and said, let's remember what happened. The Amalekites invaded Israel or tried to conquer the people of Israel. God wiped them out, and now because of the Amalekites' evil will against God's people, there will be war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Remember this and remember what God has said. The Lord will have war on the Amalekites. And some of us are going, well, what? why can't God have mercy on the Amalekites? Well, God would, but they would have to come over to worship the Lord. They don't want to worship the Lord. They want to slaughter the people of God. And so God is going to have war with the Amalekites from generation to generation. This goes on in the story of the scripture. Over to 1 Samuel chapter 15. We already see the people begin to forget. 1 Samuel 15 verse 9 King Saul is king, King Saul. Samuel has told him to go and fight the Amalekites, and the command is this, fight the Amalekites and kill them. Every man, woman, child, and animal needs to die because of what they did to the people of Israel when they were crossing over in the wilderness. Verse 9, but Saul and the people of people spared Agag. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. They also spared the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good, and they would not utterly destroy them. Of course, all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So God tells King Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. Why? Because God was in a bad mood? No, because he remembered what the people of Israel had failed to remember. The Amalekites were under judgment because they had rebelled against the people of God and God's purposes. And so now it's time for judgment to come due. And God says to Saul, I need you to take my judgment onto the Amalekites. And King Saul spares the king and also most of the good stuff. But all of the stuff the Amalekites were going to sell in a garage sale, they destroyed. Samuel comes and visits Saul. This is verse 13 of for Samuel, Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the name of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Really. Samuel said to him, What is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? Do I hear sheep? I thought they were all supposed to be dead. Are they dead sheep that are bleeding? What about the oxen I hear? And Saul then says, Well, the man, they brought some of the animals from the Amalekites for the people, and they spared the best of the sheep, and and the oxen, of course, we kept for a sacrifice to the Lord. And the rest, of course, we devoted to destruction. And Samuel says, shut up. Stop. Let me tell you what's going to happen to you. You are going to lose your kingdom because you didn't remember God's mission. You failed to remember what Moses said, remember. And now you have lost your kingdom. And the kingdom was taken from Saul because he didn't remember the work that God had done. He didn't remember God's mission, and so therefore when he was engaging in what he thought was the work of God, he was completely sideways. Over in 1 Samuel chapter 30, David finishes the job. David wipes out the Amalekites because the Amalekites had invaded one of his cities. So David wipes out the Amalekites, but the Bible tells us some of the Amalekites escaped on camels, which I think is funny. But camels are fast if you know how to ride them. So David, though, remembered what Moses had said. He remembered the mission of God, and he conquered the Amalekites that Saul failed to conquer. 
And some of us in the room are going, what is the big deal? I don't understand the big deal why God is so uptight over the Amalekites. One more verse to look at. Look at Esther chapter 3, verse 1. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. I don't know if you know the story of Esther. The people of Israel are captured, and they're in the enemy land, and the king has decided to find a new bride, and Esther becomes his bride. Esther is Jewish, living in a foreign land, and she has now uh, become king or queen of the land uh, um, to the king of Ahasuerus. Israel is living, of course, in captivity. After these things, after all this has happened in chapter 3, verse 1, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadath, Ham, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Were with him. Pay close attention. Haman the what? Agagite. Who was the king of the Amalekites? Agag. So here we have Haman, who was one of the offspring of those few guys that escaped on their camels. And we say, well, what's the big deal? Well, I don't know. What was the big deal? What was Haman's plan? Just kill all of the Jewish people who were still alive. Just, just wipe them all out. This is all. And so we say, well, God, what's the big deal that, that Saul wanted to keep a few people alive? And God says, I know what the big deal is. To be on mission, you have to remember what you were saved from, and we don't play around with it anymore. We didn't get saved from a life of sin, a life of death, so that we could live a life of Christ sort of playing around with that old life. God says that old life will kill you. That old life will come after you. Remember the victory that you have won. Remember the victory God has had. And don't play around with that which brings death. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 and 14 read like this. Besides this... You know the time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your sleep. Salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Salvation is nearer to us than when you first believed. When's Jesus coming back? It's sooner now than ever. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly. As in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and immorality and sensuality and quarreling and jealousy, but instead put on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul is saying here to us what Samuel told to Saul. Remember the victory God had over your enemies. Give them no quarter. Don't even compromise a little bit. Make no provision for the flesh. Sin may not kill us for eternity because we're in Christ, but it may cause damage for the rest of my life. And Paul is saying, make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision to gratify its desires. If Jesus would die on the cross to forgive me of my sins, why would I not be willing to do whatever it takes to cut out sin in my life today? To live on mission is to remember what he has saved me from and say, I am done with that by the mercy of God. I'm walking away from that. I am done with those games. I am done playing around with that which leads to death. I am done leaving room in my life for my sin and my, the pleasures of my flesh and for the devil. I'm not going to spare the best of the sheep and the goats and the oxen 
It's all got to go. To be on mission, we have to remember what Christ has saved us from. We just have to realize in our own Christian life, we compromise with sin in our life all the time, and we all do it for different ways. Listen, it's not gossip. I'm just sharing prayer requests. Listen, I'm not being divisive. I just need somebody to know how right I actually am. Listen, I will be happy to forgive them once they realize they're wrong. Uh, it's not really adultery because I've never met the person. We just text. It's not really stealing. I work really hard at work, and so they owe me. If they were going to pay me for all the work I actually did that they wouldn't pay me for, then they would give me the stuff I'm taking home. It's not that I'm angry. I just know the way things should be, and I find it frustrating because my anger always fixes it, doesn't it? It never makes it worse. That's sarcasm. We always are going to be negotiating with our flesh. No, it's a, this, for me, for in this particular case, it's not sin. In this particular case, my selfishness isn't selfishness. I just know what's best for the entire planet. My pride isn't pride. I just know I'm that good at this. And really, you know, the reason it seems like it's pride is because the people in my home haven't realized how good I am at this. It's not unforgiveness. They need to pay me back for the damage they caused. To be on mission, we have to remember what Jesus, Jesus forgave us of. The fact is, we nailed him to the cross. The fact is, we speared him in the side. The fact is, we walked by and mocked him. The fact is, he doesn't hold us to the same standard we seek to hold everybody around us to, and we need to remember, he who has been saved from much, that's you and me, should love and extend grace and forgiveness much. To be on mission, we have to remember what we've been saved from. We have to remember the cross was for us. Sometimes we look at Jesus on the cross and we say, well, he had to die on the cross because he was dying for the whole world's sin. If he was just taking care of my sin, he would just be in time out for a few minutes. The reason he had to do the cross was all because of the other dirty, rotten sinners. The Bible makes quite clear, if you were the only sinner on planet Earth, he would have still had to go to the cross. Your sin put him on the cross. And we have to remember the victory he had so that we will give no quarter, we will give no truce, we will not negotiate with the sin in our life because it put Jesus on the cross. And we walk away and say, I will do whatever it takes to say that is in my past and not in my future. Do you find victory over sin elusive in your life? There's two, pro two reasons victory over sin is elusive in, you, in your life. Number one is because you're still negotiating with it. You're, you don't think it's that bad. Secondly, you don't know what you're, you're blind to it. You say, well, what if I don't know what the sin is I'm struggling with? I don't, I don't have any big ticket items I need to work on. Pray that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to the sin in your life that you need to have victory over. He will be glad to let you know usually through your spouse. I'm kidding, kind of. All right, four things. How does God give vitality in the Christian life? How does Christ bring vitality in the Christian life? If you think your Christian life is sort of ho-hum, humdrum, boring, yawn-fest, 
How does God bring vitality to the Christian life? It is through mission. It is being engaged on the work that God is doing. Number one, it's through worship. That is this. We do what God has called us to do, not in order to uh, earn his favor, but we do what God has called us to do because we already have God's favor. We will live on mission for God to the degree that we believe God has forgiven us. We don't engage with doing the work of God in our homes, in our community, if we don't think we have been saved from that much. When we realize how much we have been saved from, we are moved by God's spirit to let other people know, guess what? Jesus saves people as bad as me. So how does God give vitality to the Christian life? We say, what do I need to do? Since God has given me his favor through Christ, how then should I live? How do I take the good news that Jesus saves sinners to the people in my home, the people in my neighborhood, the people in my church, the people I interact with? How can I show the people around me I have hope because Jesus saved a sinner uh, like me? Second thing, how do we have vitality in our Christian life? I don't know how to say this polite, but most of the time when we really feel powerless in our Christian life, it's because we're holding on to sin that we don't call sin. That's that's the thing. I didn't, you know, I don't have a Bible verse for this, but it's just been my experience. I've got this little thing I'm holding on to. Usually it's some kind of root of bitterness or unforgiveness, but you've got your deal. And I'm saying, Jesus, I need your help. I need your power. And he goes, can we talk about this? Yeah. Mm. We'll get to that, Jesus, when you handle this business I need you to handle. And Jesus is going, all I want to talk about is this stuff in your life that I can deal with. I can help you. So one of the reasons we don't have power in our Christian life is because we're nursing and nurturing hidden sin in our life. We have bitterness we have towards people. We have unforgiveness we have towards people. We have resentment towards people. And they have not yet figured out how wrong they were. And one of the reasons is they have no idea anything bad happened. We're holding on to these hidden sins. They're deep in our heart. And Jesus wants to root those out not to punish us, but to free us from them. We have to engage with the enemy and say, Jesus, I repent. That is wrong. I want to be done with it. Will you please change my heart? Will you change my heart that I will not hold on to these sins any longer? How do we have Christ the vitality of the Christian life? We engage with the mission by remembering the cross. The cross is something we need to keep in front of us for all of the time we live as Christians. We need to have Jesus, to have hope, to have peace, to have grace, and to have his power. Called mission. Born, or born, I can't read my own writing. To be on mission, you must go. To be on mission, you must engage the enemy. And to be on mission, you must remember the victory Christ has had.